This year, let's do the end of the old year, beginning of the new year routine differently. Instead of stressing optimistic hopes, let's not shrink away from pessimistic fears. In place of positive assertions, let's not shrink away from negative possibilities. Instead of emphasis on predictions, let's give pride a place to questions, questions, questions. So, is the long-running story of Thailand's economic progress built on the positive politics resulting from a dynamic monarchy, an enduring drift towards democracy, plus a naturally productive economy? Is that long-running story finally coming to an end? 2014 certainly provided added reasons for fearing so. For the upteenth time since the overthrow of the absolute monarchy, the military overthrew the civilian polity with a coup d'état. But this time there were no accompanying promises for a speedy return to democracy once the polity was stabilized. Also, there was no longer an active, dynamic King Bumipon. Able and willing to make sure that any such promises were kept within a reasonable time frame, instead the more frequent willingness of the military-backed government to utilize the very strict Thai laws on Lay's Majesty only drew attention to the fact that a lengthy reign was slowly drawing to an end. Long-term concern for the Thai political future increased because the military coup makers had seemingly locked themselves into a negative political position. This rejected any return to democracy because the political party led by exiled former Premier Taksin Shinawat and his sister, deposed former Prime Minister Yin Lak Shinawat, had clearly demonstrated that it had discovered a secret formula for winning Thai elections, namely that politicians must listen and respond to the complaints of Thais living in the areas remote from Bangkok. This seemingly trite conclusion had apparently eluded past generations of Thai Democrats, who now cannot forgive the Shinawat clan for both discovering and implementing it. An active, well-advised monarch might have been able to end the impasse over democracy, but an ailing, frequently hospitalized Bumipon has so far been unable to do so. But will an eventual succession be any more likely to return Thailand to the path of political progress? Will this impasse continue because much of the royalist Thai elite favors it, and also because Crown Prince Vajira Longkorn will be less able than his father to overrule it? The Crown Prince recently took the unusual step of ordering the government to strip his wife, Princess Sri Razmi. And her family of their royally bestowed name, due to her relatives being controversially involved in smuggling and gambling rackets, it is assumed that this move means that he will divorce the princess, who is mother of the heir to the throne after the crown prince. Has the shrewd Taksin Shinawat some cards to play in the unfolding Thai drama? Or is it much more likely that the leader of the recent coup, who has already elevated himself from general to being Prime Minister Prayut Chanocha, will now enjoy an extended period as Thailand's essentially authoritarian leader, much as Field Marshal Sarit Tanarat and Pibul Songram did in an earlier period? 
Hong Kong's 2014 Occupy Central Civil Disobedience Movement has been hailed as a success story. It brought together Hong Kong's younger generation in a social cause, it showed that they could hold together in difficult circumstances, and that they could articulate the grievances and injustices that made life difficult for all Hong Kongers. Their struggle gave birth to the Umbrella Movement, which in this electronic internet age reminded that symbolism is often confused with actual achievement. It remains questionable that wielding umbrellas can offer any protection against determined police use of tear gas. Yet in retrospect, the civil disobedience movement in Hong Kong was a failure and it is disappointing amidst all the talk of success that it is not being clearly seen as such. Its target was the restrictive and undemocratic conditions for the 2017 chief executive election laid down by the Standing Committee of China's National People's Congress, a body overwhelmingly composed of residents of the People's Republic of China and directed by the top leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. But the civil disobedience movement was in Hong Kong, it could only reach its target and make a necessary impact in two ways. If the government of China allowed those dissenting in Hong Kong to express their opposition in Beijing, which was obviously impossible, the few demonstrators with cross-border permits quickly lost them, or if the government of Hong Kong energetically agitated on the demonstrators' behalf with the authorities in Beijing, which obviously the SAR leaders were unwilling to do, since they had already accepted what Beijing had laid down without any protest. In the light of all these realities, how did the Hong Kong demonstrators try to connect with their target? Essentially through their futile hope that the Chinese communist leadership cared so much about the smooth flow of traffic in Admiralty, Mongkok and Causeway Bay that they would alter their political decisions when the smooth flow was disrupted or through the equally futile hope that C.Y. Leung and Carrie Lam had either the clout or the will to nag the communist leadership ceaselessly to change their stated policy for the 2000. 17 election. In reality, there was, as far as I can see, only one moment when a modest degree of persuasion might, just might have been possible. That was somewhere towards the end of September. The initial police use of tear gas to suppress the Occupy demonstrations aroused wider public opinion. The brief opportunity was there to capitalise on the growing, potentially massive support for the protesters by suspending the Occupy part and pledging instead to hold huge protest demonstrations every Sunday until the Standing Committee's dictate was amended. If such regular processions had been held, they might, I stress might, have got some impact. One huge procession in 2003 had preceded Beijing's acceptance of Tong Chi-Wa's premature retirement as chief executive. Beijing would have preferred not to see dramatic pictures of huge processions stretching all the way from Victoria Park to Central, plastered all over the international press every week and curtailing the powers of the proposed 2017 nominating committee would have been a small price for Peking to pay to achieve it. In any event, 
what might have happened would have been far better than what actually happened. The Occupy movement instead concentrated upon a relatively small number of supporters crowding into Admiralty, Moncock and Causeway Bay for a further two months from the end of September until the end of November, causing widespread disruption and inconvenience, loss of income and increased public irritation. Almost certainly, China's liaison office here in Hong Kong was able to accurately report back to Beijing on Hong Kong's diminished support for the democratic cause. As a result of the Occupy episode, Hong Kong Democrats are now probably unable to mount the huge processions that once greatly strengthened their cause. This whole Occupy episode vividly underlined that those who would promote civil disobedience movements must undertake deeper, sustained political thinking if they are to achieve their objectives. China's intransigent opposition to any democratic development can be taken for granted. In what ways can it be best opposed? China's students essentially failed in 1989 by not heeding Zhao Ziyang's advice and staying on too long in Tiananmen. In 2014, in Hong Kong, students repeated that basic error. Another great disappointment in 2014 has been the general election plus the negative drift of politics in Afghanistan. More than six months after the runoff election on June the 14th, what should be the most immediate post-election process, the appointment of a new cabinet, has still not been accomplished. The almost unbelievable amount of delay in finalising the election result has all been accomplished at a crucial moment for Afghanistan as the bulk of US and NATO forces finally concluded their war against the Taliban and withdrew. If ever there was a moment when Afghan national unity was absolutely essential, this was it. But until now, it has not been forthcoming. Initial voting in the general election took place on April the 5th, with the inconclusive result announced at the end of that month. Crucially, no candidate ended the electoral process then and there by winning 50% plus one of the vote, thereby avoiding a runoff. Instead, former Foreign Minister Abdullah Abdullah won 45%, while former Finance Minister Ashraf Ghani won 32%. The runoff election took place on June the 14th, largely because of a bitter dispute between them over the counting and therefore the result. The provisional runoff result was not announced until mid-September. This showed that the position of the two men had reversed, with Ashraf Ghani winning 56%, while Abdullah Abdullah won only 44%. This caused bitter recriminations over unproven allegations of cheating. It still does. Personal intervention by U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry first sought to end the recriminations by arranging a total audit of the whole vote, though what this precisely involved was never made clear. It evidently cooled things down slightly, and Kerry eventually brokered a power-sharing agreement and the prospect of a theoretical national unity government, both of which have yet to be actually and finally created. But at least Abdullah did agree to Ashraf Ghani being president, 
while Ashraf Ghani agreed to Abdullah Abdullah being the chief executive with undefined but presumably prime ministerial powers. Ironically, indicating the depth of their dispute, the power-sharing agreement including a stipulation that the election commission would not release the precise vote totals for each candidate in the runoff election. Precisely where this leaves the current situation in Afghanistan is simply not clear, but the fact remains that so far the only appointments the two leaders have made are of each other. President Ghani reportedly dismissed all the cabinet members in the administration led by former President Hamid Karzai and temporarily replaced them with their deputies. Inevitably, according to the Washington Post, this has left huge areas of government in a state of drift and confusion with the former deputies feeling unable to take necessary decisions. Will the Afghan National Army, now faced with the task of combating the Taliban on its own without any help from the departing American and NATO forces, will it feel that the absence of government requires a military takeover? It seems obvious, but perhaps the military is not ready to make such a move. Don't the two leaders feel an increased sense of urgency to quickly deal with the unending hiatus in government? Very likely they do, but possibly the many commitments each made to leading supporters during the election made them much less flexible than they would otherwise be. The biting irony is that right across the world, what is happening in Afghanistan is being hailed as the first democratic transfer of power in Afghanistan's history. But the deadlock in Afghanistan right now indirectly illustrates why Afghan history consists largely of one authoritarian ruler handing over power to another authoritarian ruler.